This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Carrie Vaughn. Carrie is the program manager for early stage science at Leverage Research. He studies the history of successful attempts at generating scientific knowledge in nascent fields, the characteristics these attempts share, and the historical relationship between failures in scientific ethics and slowdowns in scientific advance. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Carrie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're working on today. Sure. So um, I'm in charge of our History of Science Research program at Leverage Research. And the goal of that program is to kind of take fields of science that are highly successful today and then try and work out how they got there. So what were the important discoveries that led to the field success? How were those discoveries actually made? What were the approaches that researchers took? And we hope to then use that research to gain insights into how struggling or nascent fields today might be able to make progress. Um, Right now, we're focusing in particular on the history of electricity because electrical study is highly successful today. And there's a really interesting history there. And so that starts with uh, work in the 1600s by Gilbert that distinguished electrical attraction from magnetic attraction. And then we'll probably go until about 1860, which is when Maxwell kind of synthesizes electricity, magnetism, and heat and light mathematically. Um, And then Prior to that, I have like a pretty eclectic background. So before I worked at Leverage, I worked at the Center for Effective Altruism and did movement building in the effective altruism space. Prior to that, I worked at the foundation managing kind of technology projects. Um, I have a PhD in philosophy and I spent about a year and a half as a professional poker player who was for myself during grad school. Oh, wow. So, you know, done a lot of things, have a lot of, a lot of kind of bits of my background. Eclectic indeed. Yeah. 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 So when it comes to disrupting um, technologies, um, when you think back of what electricity disrupted, it basically disrupted human uh, muscle power. Is that correct? Um, I think that's one way to to think about it. Uh, Certainly one interesting sort of facet of the history of electricity is that people thought it was connected to life in some important way. So it appeared it appeared that electricity, you know, if you run it through your body, that can create muscle contraction, you do a bunch of interesting things there. And so part of the interest in electricity is that it seemed to be kind of the power of the gods. And that also comes from its its implication in lightning, which appeared to be, you know, like, it's like really powerful effect that people didn't know how to control. Um, so coming to have mastery of electricity like we do today is like an important part of 
kind of placing humans in center of control over nature and, and over the world around them. So you said that a key focus of, of your research right now is looking at successful scientific fields and trying to puzzle out how they got there. So let's just stay on that for as long as you find it interesting and want to talk about it. So what, what are the broad principles that characterize scientific fields that go from nascent to mature in a successful way? Are, are there any uh, principles that you can export to other nascent fields that are sort of up and coming and trying to find that balance, find purchase on their problems? Sure. Just riff on that for a while. Yeah, sure. Um, so th that's so those questions are kind of the questions of the research program. So I think of the history of science research program as a kind of implicit bet that um, that learning about what eventually successful fields of science looked like when they were still nascent and relatively unsuccessful might tell you about how to do promising research in nascent fields today. And it could turn out that could turn out to be wrong. Um, I, I kind of don't suspect that doing research into the history of science will tell you a lot about how to do like particle physics today, which I think is a pretty good example of a highly successful field. But I think it might provide some insights for either uh, scientists working in fields like in the social sciences, which you know would be super socially beneficial if they were more successful, but aren't as successful as some of the fields in physics. Um, it might also be useful for philanthropists or funders of science um, in knowing what to look for if you're trying to fund uh, research in nascent, nascent fields today. Um, and part of uh, what I expect to find is we kind of learn more about some of the fields that we think would be socially beneficial and that are, that are nascent today, is I expect to find that they're going to differ from um, the historical precedent, so how successful fields arrived at their success, um, in some ways that are going to make sense. You know, we're going to learn stuff about how to do science and how to do it successfully since, um, you know, hundreds of years ago, but in some ways that are going to be mostly like imitation of uh, fields that are successful nearby. So for example, in the social sciences, I think there's a lot of imitation of economics where a lot of fields try to present their work as being highly mathematical. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that essentially if you're doing serious work in, I don't know, sociology, you just kind of call it economics and put some math in there and, and that's yeah. how you get things published. Um, and some of that will make sense and some of that won't. Um, this is a kind of example effect that we see both in the history and that I expect to find um, in looking at nascent fields today is a phenomenon um, that we've called premature mathematization. So that's when uh, people have the idea that they should turn their field into mathematics. And they try and do that before they meet the necessary prerequisites. And we still need to work out what those prerequisites are, but it'll be things like um, a sufficiently sophisticated theoretical understanding of the phenomena you're studying, good instruments, good measurement devices. Um, and this is something we see, for example, in the, the history of electricity. So electricity gets going in about 1600 with Gilbert's work. And then in the late 1600s, you have Newton's uh, Principia and his successful attempt to uh, mathematize celestial mechanics. And uh, I think that we've seen some evidence for and I expect to find more evidence for as we do more case studies is um, a lot of electricians have the following thought. Um, I should do for electricity what Newton did for celestial mechanics. So I should turn it into mathematics on this really firm uh, footing and that will lead the field to be more successful. And uh, that did eventually happen in 1860, but before that, there were gonna be a number of failed attempts. And so what we, one of the things that we might be able to do is work out, okay, when they failed to make uh, the field mathematical, what did they lack that they later had in the 1860s with Maxwell? And then we can start working out the principles for when you try to mathematize your field, what do you actually need to have that be successful? Um, and so I expect that to be one kind of thing, one kind of insight that one might have from doing um, research in the history of science. I expect to find so, lots of others, but we're so still me, kind of early days in the research project. So, so let me let me ask you a question about that. It's always occurred to me that 
when you have a discovery or a new invention, that somehow you have to take that and put it in the hands of a very durable entrepreneur that can see it through to completion. And um, that's a that's a unique individual. And there's not that many of them on planet Earth. Um, mm. So lots, lots of the technologies, lots of the discoveries end up being um, put on the shelf for a long period of time until that that right kind of entrepreneur comes along is is that a uh, a good way of looking at it or i miss am i missing something um no that that seems kind of right to me um but i, I think the typical model there is that to go from a scientific idea to a technology or an, an invention you need the kind of entrepreneur but i think that's even true in the case of causing scientific ideas to spread in the scientific community so this is one of the things that we see in some of the case studies we've been working on is um, I did a case study on uh, a device called the Electrophorus, which was invented by Alessandro Volta. He's the guy after whom the Volt is named. And um, one of the interesting outcomes of that case study was uh, I, the, the device that he invented displays this really interesting effect where you can generate an apparently endless series of, of small sparks and kind of describe exactly how that works if it's, if it's interesting. Um, but I found that other people have described that exact effect before Volta. Um, including electricians who were much more famous than Volta, were like really well-known, well-respected guys in the field. And when Volta was coming up with his invention, he was basically a nobody. He was young, up and coming, you know, hadn't really accomplished anything. And um, the thing I described in the case study is he, he takes a number of steps to cause his device to become well-known and to spread to other natural philosophers. Um, for example, he, he markets it as a kind of a device that one can build. Um, and a lot of electricians do that. He, he describes this unusual effect that it creates, and they're able to work out how to build their own version of his device, and then they can experiment with the thing itself. And so that causes the device to spread in a way that other electricians um, who discovered this effect weren't able to. He also, um, at the time, there was a really popular practice of um, electricians kind of traveling and giving kind of electrical shows to audiences where they describe how the electric phenomena work and you know display interesting interesting things in their research. And he uh, builds his device so that it's useful for that. First of all, it's really interesting. How, does, how do these sparks keep happening? But also he describes uh, the, the actual design, which includes this like hollow base. So you can carry your like electrical paraphernalia with you. So if you need, you know, you need a bunch of things to put on these electrical shows, you can just put those in the device that he's designed and pick it with you. Um, and so I think we'll see that even in the case of spreading scientific ideas, there are things that you can and should do in order to cause those ideas to take hold. And scientists who do that have their ideas spread. And in some cases, scientists who discover similar phenomenon but don't take those steps won't have their ideas spread. Um, and that's something that you kind of don't expect if you're kind of off the street and you, you kind of imagine how you think science works. You kind of expect that the ideas spread kind of automatically somehow. Right. But the idea is better. So that's why the scientists know about it. And I think, you know, scientists are going to be people like everybody else. And some things cause ideas to spread and some things don't. And the scientists who do the things that cause the ideas to spread will have their ideas spread successfully. So, so we need to give scientists training in marketing, it sounds like. Um, something like that, or at least in how to present their ideas in ways that you, that other scientists are going to understand them and are going to engage with them and are going to build on them. Yeah, I spent, I spent quite a bit of time working with inventors, and there's, there's a certain level of paranoia that goes along with the field of being an inventor. And they're, they want to keep everything secret, and they want to make sure nobody knows about what they're 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 working on and uh, i've had some inventors that want to charge 
charge people money to just hear about what they've invented um, <laughs> without ever knowing anything in advance. So, yeah, that's that's um, and and so they really don't have a realistic uh, understanding that at some point, if you're an inventor, you need to make that transition from being a super secretive person to one of the biggest blabbermouths on planet Earth, because you need to tell the world about what you're working on. And that becomes a really hard transition for most people to make. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems right. One of the things I did when I was at the um, Center for Effective Altruism is we did the Y Combinator Startup Accelerator for a product we were building. Um, and this is a part of their kind of standard startup advice is, you know, you, you think you have this groundbreaking idea that everybody's going to want to steal, try and get them to steal your idea. Like, try and tell people and get them to build the thing that you want to build. <laughs> yeah. And it just turns out to be pretty hard to do. People don't care that much about, about your idea, and it probably won't make sense to them. What matters is actually building it, actually showing that the product works, getting people to use it. And that's just really hard. And so the kind of protectiveness over your idea, it makes sense in some cases, but in most cases, it's just different. I'm reminded of that quote that when you're a young man, you're afraid other people will steal your ideas. And when you're an old man, you're afraid nobody will. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nobody will pick it up. I'm interested in this process of premature mathematicalization. It's something I've yeah. also noted as well. It's a common critique of even economics and the other social sciences. So what is it about, uh, what do you think is driving that phenomenon? Yeah, I think um, a, a facet of successful fields, as I understand them now, um, is that they're mathematical. Mathematization allows you to do a lot of interesting things, generate interesting conclusions. Um, and so... I think a natural thing to do if you want your field to be successful is to try and imitate the fields that are already successful. It's like a pretty basic you know, human intuition. Um, and so what I think is driving it is that, 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 that correct observation that really successful fields tend to have a mathematical underpinning and uh, that in intention to kind of replicate that. Um, where I think that goes wrong is I think the fields that are highly mathematical and successful today, a lot of things happened to get there. And you've got to do the, the things that are required to have the mathematization go well. Um, one of the things we, I found in, the, in a case study I did on the discovery of electromagnetism, there's an interesting case where um, there was a French kind of highly mathematical approach uh, that was popular in the early 1800s. Um, and they conducted research on the device that eventually was used to discover electromagnetism. And essentially, they just only looked at one configuration of the device because they could study it mathematically. They, they had a measurement instrument that could be used to study attraction or repulsion for this one configuration, but not for this other one. And then they just assumed that their conclusions about that configuration would generalize. And it turns out that they don't. And in fact, kind of obviously so. Like I built my own kind of rudimentary um, device here and was able to just see that their conclusions were wrong. Um, and so that, that's like an example of where the interest in mathematizing the field uh, kind of led them to restrict their, their gaze to this really narrow subset of the problem that they were interested in. So I expect to find kind of cases like that. Um, or cases where people don't really meet the prerequisites and they're kind of, you know, doing a bit of math in their field and pretending like it's mathematized and really it's not doing the work that it's doing in other fields. What, uh, what should a person look for to know it's time to build rigorous mathematical models? Yeah. So I would love to have a really nice and precise <laughs> answer. and We're not there yet. You should um, build a model. A mathematical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, the, the kinds of things that I, the kinds of categories or general things that I expect will be part of that model once it becomes developed is um, I think there's some theoretical work that you need to do that's non-mathematical. You need to really understand what the phenomena is that you're studying, how it's related to other phenomena. There's going to be a whole sort of thing to work out there. And then um, 
you need to be able to measure the thing and turn that into quantities um, in order to do math on the phenomenon of study. And that, that's no, no easy feat. Um, figuring out what to measure, how to measure it, building instruments that can measure things precisely enough to, to do relevant mathematical operations on it. That, that's the thing that fields need to undergo and it's, it's quite difficult. Um, in, in electricity, they you know, discovered a lot of interesting phenomena for hundreds of years with no real hope of, of measuring that in any kind of precise mathematical way. And that seems totally fine. A bunch of really productive work just occurred with, with no real chance of measuring like exactly how strong the electrical attraction and repulsion was, for example. Um, and I think that might just be a phase that, that fields need to go through before they can develop um, measurement devices that allow for mathematization. You yeah, I, I was uh, kind of wrestling with a few questions today that I couldn't answer. And it was, how do, how do we know where the kind of the internet ends and the metaverse begins? And uh, as we're hearing more and more of this chatter about the metaverse, and, and I, I was struggling with trying to figure out, okay, well, we can't even define the metaverse just yet. And, and there's all these announcements that all these companies are um, putting staff and aligning uh, their teams to, to work on metaverse projects. And, uh, and so I'm still struggling as to how do we come up with a, a uniform definition for the metaverse? Do you have any good advice for that? Um, I don't know about for the metaverse, uh, specifically, um, yeah, I, I don't have anything super, super <laughs> useful to offer there, unfortunately. I haven't done a deep dive case study on on the metaverse yet. Not not yet. Not yet. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there might be applications for the kind of thing that you wanted to do. So you mentioned that you build, you, you've built at least one of those devices. And plausibly in the metaverse, one of the things you could do is maybe build similar sorts of models, the kinds of things that you can mani mm. manipulate in a somewhat tactile way and thereby enrich education. I'm actually kind of curious as to what that has contributed to your understanding of these time periods, because it's it's one thing to check out you know 15 books and just read about it or read the letters. It's another thing to go and build the thing yourself. So is this something yeah. you do a lot as, as part of your uh, modus operandi or is this a, a one-off and what did you get from that? Yeah, so um, I, this is the kind of thing that I, I didn't really expect would be an important part of the research project, but in nearly every uh, case study we've done, which just turned out to be absolutely essential. And it's one of the nice things about studying the history of science is that um, the physics is the same. That you know, the, the physics that they were experiencing, the physics that we're experiencing, those are the same. And so you can uh, work out on the basis of later advances in physics what kinds of things people could have seen, what they couldn't have seen, and you can build your own versions of the things. So um, I was able to build my own version of the Leiden jar, which is an early version of the capacitor by basically just taking a plastic bottle and running a nail through the top and lining it with some tin foil in order to get a sense of uh, what the what the Leiden jar effect was like. I was able to uh, just buy the components needed to create an electrophorus um, and also to create a voltaic pile, which is a precursor to the battery. And um, in all the cases where I did that, that was just essential to understanding what the, what the researchers were even talking about, really. Um, now, another thing that's been really helpful for the research process and that I recommend to anybody interested in understanding the history of science is like YouTube is amazing for this. The, the difference between uh, seeing somebody use uh, a voltaic pile, for example, or seeing somebody use an electrophorus on YouTube and reading a description is really, is really stark. Um, I could watch a YouTube video and I'm like, well, I understand how that works. And I read the description and like the fifth read through, I kind of understand <laughs> the operations. Um, 
So that, that kind of access to information, both the ability to build it and the ability to watch videos of people using it, has been really helpful in the research process. Um, in a bunch of cases, just the conclusions we arrive at are just, I think, wouldn't have been possible without having interacted with the devices directly ourselves. Like, like what? Um, a really uh, good case is going to be um, the discovery of electromagnetism. So uh, one of the things I worked out for the case study is, um, and one of the things that I always work out initially for any case study is, when was that discovery possible? So the discovery of electromagnetism, the effect was uh, described in 1820 by a guy named Hans Christian Orsted. And what he discovered is that if you run an electric current through a, a metallic wire and then put something that can detect magnetism near it, you use the compass needle, but you can use other things, um, that the current running through the wire will deflect the compass needle. And that's because a current of electricity produces a magnetic effect. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really important discovery because uh, it led to also the discovery of how to, so it was the first time anybody described how to turn electricity into magnetism. Later discoveries showed how to turn magnetism into electricity. That's both important theoretically because we now understand electricity and magnetism as electromagnetism and they're right. kind of unified theoretically. Right. It's also just important to tons of modern technology, the ability to do that conversion. Um, without that, you know, the modern world would look pretty different. Um, but one of the questions I had to work out is when was that discovery actually possible? Um, and, uh, and fortunately, you know, there's been some advances since, since uh, Orsted worked out uh, electromagnetism. Um, and I was able to kind of read like experimental reports that people describe of doing things like fusing iron wires with, with the device that they had. And I was able to use that to then work out how much current does that mean that they were producing? So we kind of know how much how much electrical current is required to fuse metallic wires, for example. And then also I was able to work out how much current do you need to produce an effect that you could detect? And so I was able to work out that by 1802, the experiments they described produced like two orders of magnitude more current that would be required to, um, to detect electromagnetism. And then that just changes the, the research question quite substantially. Then the question was, okay, there were 18 years where somebody could have discovered this effect. Why didn't they? Um, and part, part of the discovery there was also I built my own and was able to kind of see exactly how the magnetic effect worked. There's some discussion in the literature about um, because the, the way the magnetic effect works is kind of unusual. It's circular, so it kind of runs around the wire, which means that it will deflect the needle in some positions, but there are some where it won't. I was able to work out like actually how sensitive to the exact experimental setup was it by just building my own and seeing. And the answer is it's not that sensitive. Um, I was able to use that to kind of work out somebody could have discovered this well before the actual discovery was made. Why didn't they? Um, and that that was really helpful for the overall research process. You mentioned that one of the potential audiences for the insights that you're generating with this methodology are social scientists and We've also noted that there's a, a remarkable tendency towards premature mathematicalization in the social sciences. When we just got finished with an, uh, doing an interview with Ben Landau Taylor, who works uh, at Bismarck Analysis, doing social science mm -hmm. and, and proceeding along a very similar uh, path, actually using the case study method. So, I just wonder if you have any thoughts about how social science could regain its footing, and I, I think get over the desire to build models when it's not really appropriate, when they don't have the, the correct theoretical understanding of the underpinnings and, and, and they haven't checked all the boxes that need to be checked before you start building those complicated models. How, how do you think social science should proceed given the state that it's in now? Yeah. Um, so, so I pick social science because I think it's an area that uh, where the kind of ratio between potential social benefits to having social science fields work well 
and the current state of the field is kind of the most lopsided. I think if we had if we had much better understandings of psychology or the mind or sociology, I think that would be just enormously beneficial to society. Um, and yet, those those are fields that aren't that are doing super well today. Um, I think I think it's probably going to be a bit premature for me to say here's exactly what those fields should do. But um, the thing that I expect is that. Uh, the kinds of research that will set those fields up for long-term success will look a little more like research that occurred in the past and a little less like modern particle physics, for example. And the research that occurred in the past was using pretty simple instruments, pretty simple experimental setups to kind of work out interesting regularities um, that, that occurred in, in the fields that people were studying. And so I expect the things to just look a bit more uh, simple and straightforward than they, than they do when you read the scientific papers um, in those fields. And then more specifically, what does that look like? What does that mean? That's the thing that we're still kind of, uh, still kind of working out as we go through the research process. How do you feel about the deductive approach to social science? So I asked Ben the exact same question. The, the school of mm -hmm. economics that I find the most compelling is the Austrian school of economics. And it begins with what's called the action axiom that human beings act. And this is protected through reaffirmation uh, by denial. So you, you can't, you have to assume the axiom in order even to challenge it in any serious way. And then from that, you can deduce various things like time preference. You can deduce things like uh, marginal utility. And that gives you a framework for the interpretation of facts. And you, you have this idea of methodological dualism, which is very popular in not just Austrian economics, but in other places as well, where mm. it, it's, not that, it's not that there's no scope for empirical research. I mean, that would be a flatly ridiculous claim to make, but that you proceed... Uh, it, with a different set of tools when, when you're doing this kind of research. Like, like they're just things you can know deductively. And in fact, you need some kind of deductive framework even to interpret facts. And the canonical example is whether or not the government helped or, or exacerbated the Great Depression. So there, there's just, there's not a natural experiment you can do. You have to go into the, the facts. You have to go into a reading of the facts with an understanding of the nature of the state, how it impacts the economy, how prices work, that sort of thing. And... I mean, given that you have a PhD in philosophy, you're studying the history of science, I just have begun collecting opinions about this. Uh, and, and the question is, what do I think about that in general? Yeah, just, just what's, your, what's your reaction to all of that? Yeah, I mean, my initial reaction is that seems like a well-chosen research approach to the phenomenon of study. Like, you know, as you mentioned, you can't do well-controlled experiments to study things like, you know, exacerbate the Great Depression. So you have to use other tools. And trying to define regularities that operate elsewhere and then extrapolate those, that seems like a pretty good approach. Um, it seems like it's uniquely chosen to that, that, kind, of, that kind of area. So um, that kind of thing seems good. And then I expect if you're studying other areas in social science, you'll use different approaches given the phenomena that's actually under study in those cases. Okay, fantastic. Do you have a, any kind of like meta-scientific model? Do you have a model of, of how science proceeds that would apply to multiple different domains? And, and in particular, what I've written down is uh, the Kuhnian model of scientific development. If you have any, any critiques of Thomas Kuhn's ideas about paradigm shifts and about um, just the way science proceeds, do, do you think that's basically valid? Do you have a different understanding? Are there problems with it? Yeah. Um, so uh, I really like Kuhn's work. Um, Kuhn was a pioneer in the study of both history and philosophy of science. So I have a lot of admiration for him and his work. Um, the, the kind of model he presents is one in which uh, there's different phases to scientific development. So you start out pre-paradigmatic, where it's, you know, there's kind of warring schools that have different opinions, but it's not really clear how to conduct research and how research should move forward. And then later you establish some theory that unifies people and that people are all conducting research under. And um, that, that approach is very focused on theory. 
and uh, kind of very, you know, they're, they're these like distinct phases. And I think so far that just isn't exactly what we've been seeing in, in the history. We don't see that kind of stark paradigm kind of approach. Um, and that's because in a lot of the history, the, the kind of uh, the kind of focus on theory that is popular in, in modern science just isn't a focus in a lot of research in the past. A really good example is um, research that was conducted using the Leiden jar. Um, both the development of that and the research afterwards, the scientists involved just, they understood they didn't have good theory of electricity. They knew that the phenomenon was really capricious, that you could describe exactly how you did an experiment to somebody and it could they could fail to replicate it, that you could do the same experiment the next day and you could fail to replicate it. That was just part of, part of what studying electricity meant. And so instead of focusing on theory where they knew that their theory was gonna be wrong, they focused instead on getting mastery over the phenomenon. So they focused on demonstrating interesting effects or being able to do things with electricity that other people couldn't do. So uh, Franklin, who later becomes kind of the guy in electricity, in, in some of his earlier work, he describes a bunch of like practical jokes that he builds with electrical devices. He has this one where um, he has this picture of the King of England with a little metallic crown on him. And he instructs people to go remove the, the crown from the king. And what happens is when you touch the crown, you get this really strong shock that's driven by the lightning jar. Right. Um, and it's as though lightning is striking you down for trying to remove the king's crown. Um, <laughs> he describes that in a bunch of other just like kind of practical jokes, fun amusements, because that's how he showed that he he understood this phenomenon, right? He could master it. He could change it. He could manipulate it. He could do interesting things with it. Um, and that was just a big focus of the research process. It was the research process that led to the lightning jar and the things that they did after the invention of the lightning jar. Um, and so I, I think that's just a, that's a really valid, really useful approach. And just quite different than how you think of kind of scientists progressing today. You think of the kind of hypothetical deductive method where you have this hypothesis and you're testing it. And I think that is a valid approach to science during some stages of development, but it's not the only valid approach. And I think a lot of really useful work occurred with a more exploratory approach where you're just kind of seeing how the phenomenon works, testing out the edges, trying to make it stronger or weaker, show mastery over it, things like that. Yeah, kind of tied into that point is <clears throat> Thomas Edison actually spent a lot of time and energy uh, inventing the electric chair um, to uh, to make a, a point of how dangerous uh, uh, alternating current was uh, yeah. because he was he was uh, trying to show the world how much better direct current was that that he was backing and um, and that was the ultimate illustration of of the downside of alternating current is that we could kill people with it. Yeah. And he'd been doing demonstrations around the country um, where he was electrocuting small cats and dogs on stage <laughs> just to yeah. prove his point. And uh, it's, it's kind of preposterous. Uh, that that kind of backs up what you were saying there. Yeah, it, yeah. it reminds me of the point you made earlier about Volta spreading his ideas by making yeah. it easy to replicate them and, and creating instructions that people could follow to make their own devices. It's sort of the opposite of that. He goes around, you know, electrocuting your pets to, to demonstrate the evils of this technology. I actually, I, yeah, I read exactly. somewhere that it was an elephant that he electrocuted, although I could be wrong. About it. I that that was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was Topsy the elephant in 1903. Um, yeah. There was an elephant that had killed uh, three people. Uh, uh, over over time, and they decided the elephant had to go, and so they um, they they wanted to to they tried poisoning the elephant, and it didn't work, and so they decided to electrocute it. And 
that's when Edison sent out a team of 10 people to, uh, to electrocute the elephant and they filmed it. It's actually on YouTube. If you want to look it up, the electrocution wow. of Topsy the elephant. Uh, well, wow. It's an 11 second video. <laughs> that's remarkable. You, you know, an awful yeah. lot about that particular event. Yeah, I, I happen to. Yes. <laughs> uh, one, one of the things I realized after kind of thinking about the kind of showmanship that was popular in, in early electricity is, that's actually is an approach that people are using today. It just doesn't, you just don't think of it that way. So a really good example is uh, DeepMind is just in the business of showing their mastery over things like video games or their ability to beat, you know, uh, the strongest human players at Go. What that does is it shows that they have mastery over this phenomenon of, of, um, of deep learning and machine learning techniques and that they can do interesting things with that. And then that attracts interest in their technology, interest in people coming to research that and working with them. Um, and I think it's very much the kind of approach that people were using in the past, where they showcase their ability to produce interesting and amusing effects with the technology, and that caused people to become interested in, in learning more about it and conducting their own research. One of the things you've written about is the importance of the philosopher Immanuel Kant to the study of electromagnetism, and that is not a connection I've seen drawn anywhere else. So could you, could you tell us sure. about that and, and sort of make the case for it? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, the so the his study there is on the discovery of electromagnetism, which was discovered by by Orsted in 1820. And um, what I do in the case study is I work out first when could the discovery have been made. I, I pin that to 1802 when they had the they produced enough current to see a magnetic influence pretty clearly. They were looking for it, and then in trying to work out why nobody made the discovery for 18 years, um, the basic answer is just that nobody looked. So had you looked in a closed electric pile, which is what um, Orsted ended up using for a magnetic effect, you just would have seen it. They just were producing enough current, the effect's not that hard to see, um, and just nobody decided to conduct that particular experiment. And that's despite the fact that the device that was used to make the discovery, the voltaic pile, was really popular. Lots of people used it for research. It was a pretty beloved instrument during the time. And lots of people thought electricity and magnetism would have some interesting connection, just because they seem so similar as phenomena. And so then in uh, working out, okay, well, why did Orsted decide to look if nobody else did? Um, the answer I came to is he has this paper in 1806 in which he presents a theory of how electricity moves through a wire. Um, and Orsted's writing style is like a bit difficult to parse, like a little bit convoluted, but the basic essence of the story he has there is that there are these fundamental kind of primordial forces in nature and they're in conflict in the wire. And when primordial forces in nature are in conflict, they produce interesting effects, um, other forces in nature. And he notes that when you run enough current through a wire, you can see both heat and light. Um, you see heat because if you run enough current through within enough wire, you can melt it, which requires a lot of heat. And if you run enough current through within enough wire, you can also cause it to glow, which produces light. And he reasons that this kind of conflict between these fundamental forces could also produce other forces, including potentially magnetism. Um, and then later, when he makes the discovery, he has this theory that tries to explain it, um, which has a lot of connections to this earlier 1806 theory um, about how electricity moves through a, a wire, uh, an electrical wire. Um, and so I'm able to show that that was very likely a theoretical conception he had that caused him to run the crucial experiment to see whether you could detect magnetism from a current of electricity. Um, and also, I was able to show uh, why Orsted was even in the business of creating theories of how electricity moves through wires in the first place. And that's um, in part because he had a very philosophical approach to the study of science. So 
that was driven by his interest in the work of, of Immanuel Kant and then uh, German nature philosophy, and also a bunch of the premises that he uses to come up with that theory um, are premises advanced by Kant and, and, and German nature philosophy. It's the idea that you're going to be able to reduce all the forces in nature to a small number of fundamental forces, um, things like that. And so uh, that suggests to me that, you know, Orsted decides to look in the crucial place to find electromagnetism because of his interest in theoretical um, kind of philosophizing about, about nature, and that the specific premises he uses to come up with this theory were driven by his interest in Kant and interest in philosophy. Um, and, you know, like even though I'm a, I'm a philosopher, I have a lot of respect for the tools of philosophy. I certainly didn't expect to find, you know, Kant getting kind of an assist and an important discovery in the history of science, but that's just where the case study led me, and it seems like the right conclusion. So I, I wanted to pursue that lead a little bit there because one of the criticisms I've heard articulated about Kantian uh, transcendentalism is that the distinction he makes between the phenomenal and the noumenal world essentially sunders the uh, contact consciousness has with reality. The idea that you have these inborn categories in consciousness through which you interpret all sensory data effectively means it's impossible for you to get at reality as it really is. And that this, this in part is a lot of what drove kind of the mysticism that came later. I, I don't think Kant would have endorsed a lot of that, but it was precisely yeah. driving this wedge between sense data, concepts, and the world that allowed all of that to kind of flower. And so it's very interesting that, that Orsted drew certain premises and certain inspirations from Kant, while at the same time, at least some scholars have maintained, that Kant was the prime force behind the destruction of the idea of objectivity and reason as such. So I, I know you're a philosopher. I haven't really studied Kant all that much. Does there seem to be yeah. any plausibility to that? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, certainly that's one of the influences that Kant has on subsequent philosophers. So the kind of German nature philosophers are, are post-Kantian and they're certainly responding to Kant. And um, they have a bunch of pretty unusual ideas about nature and how it works. Um, one of the people that was really influential on Orsted is a guy named Schelling, who um, uh, is certainly not super well respected amongst modern philosophers. Uh, you know, he has some interesting theoretical ideas, and then he makes a number of empirical claims about like effects that he claims to have seen that are just that are just false. That just you know, we, we can just look and see that that's not how that works. Um, and you know, a lot of their ideas are influenced by the, this kind of distinction that contrasts that you mentioned. Um, but, so I think that's right. But then part of what Orsted gets from Kant is um, this idea that you can try to work out the principles of nature a priori. Um, that is, I think, uh, was not a super popular approach to science at the time. It's become more popular over time in the sense that you, you know, to the degree that you think mathematical demonstrations of phenomena or mathematical descriptions are a priori in some sense. Um, and so that kind of that kind of a priori approach, approach kind of, uh, and Orsted's allegiance to that kind of made him essentially like a theoretical physicist of his day. And his, his theoretical work wasn't mathematical, it was philosophical. And so he writes a ton about how he thinks physics is going to work and how he thinks the phenomenon are going are gonna to work, um, which he sees as a kind of a complement to um, doing empirical research to see whether the regularities work out the way that, they, that he, in fact, hypothesizes that they're going to work out. That's interesting. It's almost like the, uh, uh, the application of the points I was making earlier about Austrian economics, but to the physical sciences. And I, I've wondered a lot yeah. about whether or not that's appropriate. I mean, I, I lean towards no. Uh, you can't like the history of science is riddled with people who deductively proved that there were seven planets or deductively proved that heavier than air flight would never be possible 
only to have that look embarrassingly silly eight or 10 or 12 yeah. years later. And so I, I tend to be a lot more skeptical of it there uh, than I am in the social sciences, but it, it's, it's neat to trace that thread, that uh, thread in intellectual history. Yeah. I've been, yeah. I've been speculating that there's all this talk about how dangerous AI is going to become in the future, but we really don't have any system for measuring AI. And so I've been speculating that we're going to come up with uh, a measure similar to a human intelligence unit that we'll be able to um, measure how 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 smart an AI system is, and um, and using that idea, how would you go about coming up with a, a measurement of a human intelligence unit? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So uh, I, I do think. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So in, in, in AI and of people who are concerned with, you know, when artificial general intelligence might be developed, the question of how to predict this and how to, how to even measure progress is a really interesting one. Um, part of the problem, I think, is um, AI crushes humans with some things and is, is laughably bad in others. And uh, I think it is going to be really interesting to figure out how you could measure um, general progress, especially towards a benchmark of kind of human intelligence. Um, I'm not sure what kind of things I would look at. You, you could imagine just like having a battery of path of like simple tasks that you have your singular AI system uh, try to complete, and you see how good how good they are at that. Um, certainly, some interesting work happened with uh, the idea of passing the Turing test as some kind of important benchmark in artificial intelligence. And while I don't know that the that the Turing test is like super sophisticated theoretically, like I don't know if that's in fact some important benchmark, it was an important kind of rallying point for researchers that led right. to a lot of interesting developments and it was kind of a point around which researchers could, could coordinate and figure out how things were progressing. So you may end up with something like that. That's not super theoretically satisfying, but is nevertheless really an interesting way to kind of keep track of, of clearing relevant benchmarks. Yeah, so I've, I've been thinking in terms of somebody in the future going to their local robot store to buy a robot and each of the robots on display is rated at uh, 0.6 human intelligence units and and uh, 1.3 human intelligence units and 2.6. And depending on what you want them for, uh, want to use it for, then you decide on how smart you want that robot to be, um, yeah. which is kind of a crude way of looking at it. But it uh, it's something I think people can kind of get their mind wrapped around. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That makes sense. So I wonder with that example, how divisible intelligence is. We have a similar metric with IQ, which famously is kind of difficult to understand in terms of the real world impacts it has. Like, like it's, it's pretty clear somebody with an IQ of 190 has got more of something, right? But it's, it's not always clear exactly what that is. And I just wonder what, like, what would be the difference between a robot with 1.1 human intelligence units and 1.2 human intelligence units? Like what, what's the 0.1 unit? What is that actually mm. corresponding? I mean, it could be an IQ point, but that's a very, I think that's a fuzzier metric than is often appreciated. It's emotional intelligence. <laughs> so, just, <laughs> so this one will, will not laugh at you if you cry. 
with the, with the extra point one. <laughs> Better at interpreting facial cues. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. uh, a, as you were talking about the exploratory phase in many of these empirical sciences, the discovery of electricity yeah. and, and magnetism and their union, I was thinking about uh, William Rotengen and his discovery of x-rays. And when he was asked, what will the practical benefit of this be? I, if I recall correctly, his response was nothing. It was just was there was no understanding of what it could possibly uh, lead yeah. to down down the line. That could be apocryphal. I don't know. But I wonder if you have any comments on, quote, useless advances where, where there's clearly an advance. It, it's it's clear that something mm-hmm. has gotten better. It's just not clear what the practical application of that w- w- will be or the commercial application of that will be. And I've been thinking about this a lot in connection to blockchain technology. So I work at a blockchain company. Mm-hmm. I'm reading a lot of blockchain books. And there are certain clear use cases, but it I think there's some validity to the claim that it's a solution in search of a problem. Uh, I, I don't think that's grounds for dismissal of the technology, but there are people who seem to be way over their skis and claiming that it's going to revolutionize everything. So it's it's not, I wouldn't say it's a useless advance, but it has something of that same flavor. So given that you've studied how the dynamics of these fields unfold over the centuries as they pile up uh, empirical advances, what what does that look like as they come to realize that there are uses for the machines they're building or the phenomena that they're exploring. Yeah. So um, you might want to measure one of two things. You might want to measure the usefulness to like society. Can you produce a useful invention of this? Can I use this to build something that can help people? Um, And the usefulness to the field. So does this advance the state of the art of the field? Does this produce a useful discovery that people can build on and so on? And I think um, historically it's been somewhat easy to say whether a new advance advances the state of the field and really difficult to say whether advances in the state of the field are actually going to be useful to the world. Um, you know, the study of electricity, which now has just transformed modern life, that, that started with people rubbing stones, essentially. This, this is what a lot of Gilbert's work deals with is, is um, since antiquity, people knew that if you rubbed amber, it could attract light objects. And what Gilbert does is there's a bunch of claims made about how that effect works and whether it applies to other kinds of, of objects. Can you just rub anything and it attracts is it particular stones? And Gilbert just spends a lot of time rubbing different things and seeing whether it attracts and then seeing whether that's the same or different as the attraction that uh, the lodestone has for iron filings. The jokes practically um, write they, themselves. <laughs> yeah. Rubbing yeah, things so, so and see, idea, what, <laughs> see what it attracts. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, so the idea that you'd go from like rubbing amber to modern technology, computational technology is just kind of crazy. And I, I don't think something anybody could have predicted at the time. Um, but I think you could read Gilbert and saying, okay, this is this is an advancement in the state of study here. Gilbert has taken all of these claims that people make in antiquities about various effects, and he's just tested them, and he can show you that's true, that's false, that's true, here's what it means, here's the critical distinction. There's amber-like attraction, there's lodestone-like attraction, those are different. Um, and so I think that's the thing to focus on is, is both, is there a long-term path according to which this field could be useful? And then also, is this development advancing the state of the field? I think the advancing the state of the field is just a lot easier to detect and whether it will be useful in the long run is harder, but um, lots of fields that have become successful turn out to be useful. And so I, I think it's a reasonable bet that you can show mastery over some aspect of nature that seems important. Probably you'll be able to find a use for that at some point in the future. Right. I, I tend to agree. I think that the inductive inference to be made over the history of science is that if you get really, really good at predicting a phenomenon or harnessing it in some way, that there will almost always be an application somewhere down the line. And it doesn't mean that every single trail is worth following, but by and large, the experiments over enough time, once they are refined enough, will yield uh, socially beneficial products at the end. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the trend. Do you think that... 
Okay. There was a good example of when when the transistor was invented, uh, William Shockley and uh, the, the two other gentlemen at Bell Labs that invented it, um, they they finally got it to work and they went home that night and they had no idea what they come up with. But uh, that's the, 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 the invention of a transistor didn't really have any application ready to go. So that was one of the things that just uh, sat around momentarily and then uh, a lot of people figured out the usefulness of it. Yeah. So, so that answers your question, Trent. <laughs> Appreciate that, Thomas. <laughs> uh, does does that also apply to super duper fundamental research? Like, I am thinking string theory. I'm thinking particle physics. I I don't know uh, whether or not you have any thoughts on that. Perhaps the timeline just hasn't been long enough yet. It'll take 300 years for us to find useful applications of those things. But how do you feel about that kind of research? Um, yeah, I, I just think the long term trend is that. Um, if in fact you can come up with more precise understandings of fundamental physical features, that that's going to turn out to be useful somehow in the future. Um, and so I'd certainly be willing to place quite a lot of you know money behind the bet in doing more particle physics, string theory, things like that. And then there's a really hard question, which is exactly how much money could we build more particle colliders to right. get slightly higher energy levels? And I, I don't know the answer to that, and I, I don't really pretend to, and I, I don't envy the job, the position of people who need to make trade-offs between, say, that and I don't know, biomedical research, which could lead to life-saving technology. Um, my guess is that you want to advance both, and there's just a question of to what degree and how much. Well, I did want to ask whether or not you've given any thought to the best ways of funding these kinds of things. So it's it's common wisdom now, wisdom that I think is probably mostly mistaken, that the only way to get fundamental research funded at all is through some kind of subsidy or a government mechanism of some kind. They collect taxes and then they give it to these researchers because there's just no, like, like it's a public good, which is a term that's bandied about a lot mm. with, uh, by people who don't, I don't think are really being careful with what that term actually means. So I don't know if you've gone down a rabbit hole of thinking about science funding or how you would fund something like this that has a potentially centuries worth of uh, work before there's any substantive ROI or not. Yeah. No. Um, so, so my understanding of the state of kind of science funding today is that mostly other scientists review your, your grant proposals and decide whether your thing should get funded. And so for public funding, you know, like national science foundation, there, there are you know, review committees that decide what should get funded and whatnot. Um, and I think those, uh, I think they're kind of directive and things that a lot of those, those funding committees do is they try and find things that are that are going to work essentially you know this is going to lead to it to an advance in the field and that advance could turn out to be useful um one of the things that i hope our research will do kind of in the long term is um give a different signal that one could look at to determine whether a thing should be funded it isn't just will it work for this you know short-term project but is this the kind of research that could set up a successful thriving field in the future and so if you can say here's what those fields looked like in the past with the authority of you know looking at some of the greatest scientists in the past and the fields that we know to be successful you know it looked like this then when scientists propose projects that are very early stage but they look like the projects that were highly successful and led to successful fields maybe those kinds of research projects will get funded in a way that they don't now where the directive is more will this work and does this conform to kind of the existing paradigm um so I'm hopeful that we can kind of, you know, in the long run, kind of have, have that kind of effect on kind of scientific culture and trying to evaluate what projects are worth funding and what projects should go forward. Well, here's the hoping. One of the, the themes that you 
uh, one of the themes running through your work is the connection between scientific ethics and the breakdown of advances in science. So when ethics slip and for example, the Tuskegee experiments that tends to yeah. retard the advancement of that field, or at least, mm. at least I take that to be your, your contention. So why don't you talk a little bit about the connection between those two things? Sure. So, um, one of the things that I've been researching is kind of the events that led to the creation of institutional review boards in the 1970s, and especially um, those being enshrined into like a legal requirement um, with the National Research Act. So uh, just as some background there, so an institutional review board is um, a, or IRB, is this process that you have to go through if you're doing um, research on human subjects. So you have to kind of submit your work to this committee who's going to review it, going to decide whether the benefits to the participants outweigh the potential harms to them. And they're going to make sure that uh, the way you describe the experiment to participants allows them to actually render informed consent on that, that procedure. Um, and IRBs have this kind of reputation of being a pretty Byzantine bureaucracy involving lots of seemingly needless paperwork, little obvious, some, sometimes that has little obvious relationship with the protection of human subjects. Um, Scott Alexander, people are familiar with his work, has this really excellent piece called My IRB Nightmare that I recommend reading, which is kind of his first personal interaction with IRBs and the weird rules that they, they have in place. And so what I was interested in is kind of how did we get there? How did we get to this, to this kind of Byzantine system for trying to protect human subjects? And I'm still in the process of kind of developing the picture there, but um, the kind of story that I have right now is between the 1940s and the 1970s, especially post-World War II, until um, the National Research Act in 72. Um, what you see is biomedical research be quite ascendant um, and become a really popular both source of public good and also a, a deserving source of public support. So you see um, the development of the widespread availability of penicillin just after World War II. You see the polio vaccine in the early 50s. They develop ways to transplant organs, ways to treat hypertension. They come up with a lot of pretty groundbreaking discoveries. Um, and also during that period, there's a really huge increase in funding, uh, public funding for biomedical research. So the National Institutes of Health undergoes a 355-fold increase in funding between 45 and 65. That's even after you adjust for inflation. Um, so it looks like the field of biomedicine is doing really well. The public's in favor. They're producing life-saving discoveries. Um, you know, things seem kind of, kind of great. Um, but then while all of that's going on, um, there's a number of pretty serious uh, kind of ethical scandals that come out of biomedical research um, that ends up kind of eroding public trust and the ability of scientists to govern uh, their own sense of the costs and benefits of their research. So um, the Tuskegee syphilis study that you mentioned is one case. Um, th there's a kind of erroneous understanding of that study, which is that they gave people syphilis sometimes here. That, that's not really what happened. They, they followed a bunch of uh, uh, almost exclusively black men who had syphilis to kind of see the effect of syphilis on them over time. And then after penicillin became the kind of well-known treatment for syphilis, they just didn't tell the people either that they had syphilis or that they should get this penicillin treatment. So what they should have done is just shut down the study, give them the treatment that they now know, you know, will work um, and try and save some lives. And instead they just kept the study going and followed them as syphilis ravaged their bodies and infected their, you know, their spouses and so on. Um, there's also just other just really horrific experimentation on children and the mentally infirm. They deliberately infected prisoners with various illnesses. Um, the CIA under projects like MKUltra just does experimentation that can only be described as psychological torture to try and do things like change people's personalities and cause them to divulge information. So you have both this ascendancy and these pretty serious ethical 
um, violations. And then the, the kind of way society decided to solve this problem of wanting the benefits but not wanting these, you know, these horrific experiments to continue is um, they used bureaucracy essentially. So they designed this IRB process, which has all these legal requirements and you've got to check all the boxes and follow all the procedures. And that, that appears to work in terms of protecting human subjects, the, the, the serious ethical violations that have occurred since the, the passage of the National Research Act just are much smaller than occurred before. But you know, if you're a person who cares about scientific progress, this is not the system you would design as far as I understand it. Um, it, it wastes a lot of time and slows down research progress and so on. Um, and one of the kind of perspectives or arguments that I have from that research is if you care about scientific progress, governing the science well, governing its ability to produce benefits and not produce costs is a really important part of the long-term success of the scientific enterprise. Um, science funding is increasingly done from the public. And if you can't govern that that goes well, that produces benefits and not harms, um, then there's just evidence that society will step in and they won't use the kind of surgical regulation that you might like to, to ensure that your research goes well instead of poorly. So when I was a kid growing up, um, <clears throat> kind of the spokesman for everything scientific was Carl Sagan. And yeah. once Carl Sagan died, we were looking around for a new spokesperson and and the person that kind of rose to the top was Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, yeah. Now, now you're you're kind of talking about that we're we're due for a change here, and that somebody like a Hank Green would be a much better spokesperson. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So uh, th this is more a rant than like a serious scholarly idea, but hopefully you'll you'll indulge me a bit. Um, so uh, you know, I have a training I have training in philosophy. So when I started uh, becoming interested in the history of science. One of the things I was really kind of surprised to learn and was really eye-opening is just how little the actual history of science or the modern practice of science, there's a little that has to do with what you're taught in school, for example. So in school, I remember seeing this flow chart that was the scientific method. And you know, it's 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 you have a you have a hypothesis, you gather preliminary data, you submit it for peer review. And then I was like, okay, is that you know, is that how science works? And I looked into it. I think the answer is just pretty clear, no, that's just not. Nobody seriously thinks that that's how science works. People use different approaches in different areas. Um, that that kind of, you know, the idea of the scientific method is presented there kind of acts like the hypothetical deductive method is the only way to do science when there's exploratory approaches that are quite successful and so on. Um, and so there, there's that and there's other cases where the kind of public understanding of science is just not very connected to the actual practice. And there's a question of where to assign blame for that. And I think, you know, the education system is an obvious case. I, I grew up in Texas. There's a chance that for political reasons, you know, the science curriculum was worse there than it could have been elsewhere. Um, but also, I, I think you also want to place some blame at, at the people who, who see it as their job to communicate science to the public. And so Neil deGrasse Tyson is a, is a pretty good, pretty good example there. Um, and one of the things that kind of uh, caused me to pay attention to him and his kind of role in, in how he presents science was this uh, kind of Twitter kerfuffle that he had where he, he tweeted something that was like, uh, you know, the great thing about science or what's good about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. And then he got a bunch of pushback for that, including from the account Stakeums. Are you guys familiar with the, the Stakeums Twitter account? Uh -uh. Uh, so Stakeums is like some kind of meat product that I guess you can buy in the supermarket. <laughs> then they have this Twitter account, which is just hilariously meta. So they just say, we're just tweeting this to sell you Stakeums. And they comment on 
science, rationality, policy, like they just comment <laughs> on a wide range of things in the service of selling you steak products. It's a really bizarre and interesting corner of Twitter. Um, but they, they kind of put Neil deGrasse Tyson on blast, being like, look, this is not, not a helpful way to talk about science. And he uh, then tweeted kind of as a response, a link to this article he had written uh, on the Hayden Planetarium website, which I think is where he works, um, which was his attempt to kind of articulate what science is and explain how this, this idea that, you know, science, science is true, whether or not you believe in it is correct. And, you know, to, to be frank, like, I, I would not give that, that article high marks if it was like, it was like an intro to philosophy of science course or an intro to science course. And to have somebody who represents himself as like a public representative of science, tweet, tweet out that article, I think is like a little bit embarrassing. So, so it includes a bunch of gems like, um, he distills the core principle of science as do whatever it takes to avoid fooling yourself into thinking something is true that is not, or that something is not true that is. And he's like, this is the core of the scientific method. And this is the, the big insight that came with the scientific revolution. And the idea that people before you know the 1600s didn't know that they should worry about fooling themselves is just kind of ludicrous. Like read some Socratic dialogue, read Euclid, which occurs way before that and establishes things with quite a lot of regularity, quite a lot of certainty. Um, and so the, the idea that that's like some core principle of science is just kind of kind of ridiculous from a historical perspective. Um, he also makes this, this really kind of bizarre claim, which is that once an objective truth is established by scientific methods, it's not later found to be false, he says. And of course, it, if you're familiar with like modern physics, you'll be like, wait a minute, uh, didn't, didn't uh, general relativity show that Newtonian celestial mechanics was wrong? And of course, he's smart enough to, to address this. And what he says is, is no, no, that, that's not, you know, we didn't show that Newtonian celestial mechanics was wrong. Instead, what happened is general relativity describes things at different scales. And it describes deeper realities of nature that it makes visible. Um, and, you know, the Newtonian things are still correct at the scales that they operate at. And like, first of all, it's arguable that that's even right as far as it goes. But also, I, I think that really, that sells Einstein short, I think. Uh, one of the interesting outcomes of, uh, of general relativity is that it shows that the, the kind of parallel postulate in Euclid is false in our universe. Yeah. Uh, you know, it turns out parallel lines do touch because space-time is curved. But I act like that didn't overturn things that we thought were certain. We certainly thought Euclidean geometry was certain. Is I think just really unfair to how mind-blowing a thing general relativity is. Um, and there's a bunch of other things in there that I think are just kind of ridiculous as a way to communicate science to people and as a way to, um, you know, kind of accurately explain how science actually works. And you can compare that with Hank Green, who I follow on Twitter. I'm on TikTok. He has a really good TikTok account. And instead of like kind of rooting for the science tribe and trying to show the science tribe how dumb everybody else is, Hank Green just like answers interesting questions. He's just like, Here's how the vaccine works. Here's how coronavirus works. Um, here's a TikTok which, uh, in which somebody asks, why is there hair between your butt cheeks? That's a weird question. But when you think about it, you're like, yeah, what? why on earth? Like, that's common. And why on earth is that is that the case? And it turns out some scientists have done some research on this. And he sort of discusses the main theories for why that's the case. And he just indulges people's, people's curiosity. And I'm really looking forward to when this kind of older generation that Neil deGrasse Tyson represents, which is kind of, you know, science as, as authority figure and kind of rooting for the pro-science type, gets replaced by people in the image of Hank Green who just answer your questions and indulge your curiosity and use science to help you understand the world. Um, 
So that's kind of that's kind of my rant on science communication. So science communication will proceed one funeral at a time, we might say. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we might. Uh, I don't know. We'll have to reach out to Hank Green and see if he wants to come on the show and answer whatever <laughs> random curveballs that Thomas and I throw. At. We we used to we yeah. used to do this with guests. We we kind of phased it out after a while, but Tom, <laughs> Thomas would just ask people like. The, the man who invented the clock, like, how did he know what time it was? How did he know what time to set the clock? And it's, it's just, it's really, it's, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. We, we did it. We stopped doing it because it's kind of a non sequitur. It's a little jarring for people just to have that thrown at them. But it, but it was pretty interesting because you have these world famous intellectuals, like really accomplished scientists, you know, pe people who are uh, at the top of their fields. And just to see them grapple with a complete curveball like that, just a, a question out of the blue was, was pretty instructive actually. And I mean, so, some of the better answers, the people who were quicker on their feet were just, machine learning engineers, nobody's, you know, people you'd never even heard, you know, yeah. hear of, but they're yeah, just yeah. like, well, I mean, how would you do it? I don't know. The sun's in a certain position and you have a rough idea that's noon and probably shadows on the walls and you do a little trig and, you know, like the, yeah. they were pretty good at reasoning through it. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah so, yeah, cool. uh, we're, we're, we're just about at time here. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we covered most of the, the topics that are of interest. Covered quite a lot of quite a lot of scope. I think. Carrie's done talking to us. All right. Well, we 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 appreciate it, Carrie. We appreciate you making the time. Thank you very much. This was uh, very illuminating, and we wish you the best of luck in your research. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks, Carrie. This is great. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>